would please be turning in Isaiah chapter 48. And as you're turning, I'll just kind of review some things we covered last week. Uh, first of all, Isaiah 48 is kind of a summary chapter of chapters 40 through 48. And throughout chapters 40 through 48, this is kind of the pattern that we see repeated multiple times. Uh, first, in this summary chapter, uh, Israel is called to listen or to pay attention. Uh, the word hear is used. And then one of the things that we saw Isaiah do multiple times was he would always have a high view and opinion of God. He would highlight the fact that he was transcendent, that he was omnipotent, that he was omniscient. And he would beat that drum quite a bit. Um, I think at least three, maybe four times, he would point to creation and point to the fact that God was the creator. And then he would transition to idols, which always drove me nuts, because I don't want to give idols any more time than, than I absolutely have to. And if you're like me, you wake up some mornings and you realize, oh, I've let an idol kind of creep into my heart. And you try and deal with it, and you realize you need a savior because we're prolific idol makers. It just doesn't take much at all. And then we need to have a proper perspective on the future. And we covered a number of things because Isaiah pointed to the impending captivity in Babylon, but then the return of them when Cyrus would take place. And he called him by name, which is highly unusual in the Bible. Normally you get these generalities, but they're very specific generalities, but they aren't naming people. But Cyrus is named in these chapters as the one that God's going to use as his servant. And last week I mentioned two books and I figured I'd put them on the screen because I had two or three people afterward ask me about them. And so I'm going to leave them up for a moment. Things to Come is written by Dwight Pentecost. It is not your average easy read uh, eschatology book. It's probably a book that could be used as a college textbook in a Bible college. Um, it's not the easiest read. He covers things in there as to what you don't do in eschatology as well as you know how he discerned what the Bible said about things to come. And so that's the first one. It's a fairly thick book. Um, you don't want to try and read it before you go to bed at night unless you're wanting to really sleep and not finish the book. Um, but it, it's definitely a more scholarly book than a lot of books that you may have read um, about future events, about the tribulation, about the rapture and things. The second book is called The Coming Prince. And one of the reasons I mentioned that, it's written by a British guy. That's why you see the Sir Robert Anderson. But I had several people ask the titles and the authors, and so I wanted to put those up and give you a minute to write those down if you're interested. But the thing about the coming prince that I thought might be of interest to you is this book is about Daniel. 
And in Daniel, Daniel highlights the fact that God revealed to him the times and the um, prophecies that were put before them by Jeremiah. And he explains the 77s or 490 years. Sir Robert Anderson goes through a very rigorous um, derivation, I guess is the word I would use, but he basically explains when that prophecy starts from the command to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. And he rigorously accounts for every year. Um, it's almost as bad as someone that's an accountant, and I say that to tease Vera a little bit, that counts every penny. I'm good for maybe a, a dime or so, but she's good down to the penny. Well, Sir Robert Anderson, when it comes to the years and the times, he's down to very exacting details concerning those years. And so they're both very good books, both very good to read. And so I, I just kind of wanted to bring those up. The other thing we did is we covered some of the open prophecies that we, the church, can look forward to. And one of the ones is the rapture. And if you'll notice, I have a little section listed in yellow after we covered some of these. And, and all I was trying to point out was just like the Israelites, Jewish people in the time of Isaiah had open prophecies that they could look to. The church has the same thing today. And so there's prophecies that we know have not been fulfilled. And if you're like me, as you look around, as you read the newspaper, you see signs of the times everywhere, that things aren't getting better that we got a whole lot of people going around thinking that through education or this thing or that thing that mankind is going to get better. It's not. Uh, it's going to get worse. And we see it even in our country. And I think most of us are grieved by it. We take no pleasure in it. But one of the things that I mentioned as we were talking about those open prophecies is the fact the Holy Spirit resumes Old Testament operation. I got asked a question about it, and I think the easiest thing I can do is kind of show some examples in the Bible as to what that sentence is talking about. First thing I want you to know is that the word spirit is used 456 times in the King James Version translation of the Bible. And no, I did not go count them. I am very grateful for electronic Bibles where you type in the word and it tells you how many times and all the places that are there. But I type that in because there's different phrasing that may indicate the Holy Spirit, but also may indicate familiar spirits, other spirits, other things. And so then I put in Spirit of the Lord and it's used 31 times in our King James Bible. And here's just a few samplings. And this is the phrase that I wanted to highlight about how God used the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament. If you look at Exodus 31, 
uh, verses 1 through 5, in the middle of that says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. And this had to do with the building of uh, the ark and, and the tabernacle and things. And God filled them that were commissioned for that with the Spirit of God. And then Judges 3.10 said, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And then 6.34, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And then we can go into Judges 11. The Spirit of the Lord came upon, and I can't even pronounce it this morning, J-E-P-H-T-H-A-H, however you say that. Okay, and what they said, that works for me. Uh, Samuel says, The Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy, and shalt be turned into another man. And then in Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon David. And so I know we're familiar with King David, but people don't often think about that when he was anointed king, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. But then notice the next phrase. It says, So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And so in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was in operation. There, there's nothing uh, different from the standpoint of God's Holy Spirit working in this world. But what is different is what he does concerning you and I, the church. And so the next set of verses deal with the New Testament. In Joel chapter 2, it's promised that God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And in those days will I pour out my spirit. Acts chapter 2 is the fulfillment of that. Peter is talking about that. And he directly quotes from Joel. And then if you look at John chapter 7, there's a parenthesis there that says, but this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon someone when God wanted that person to do something specific and something out of the ordinary, but he didn't necessarily indwell them, and he didn't always stay with them. If you notice Saul, it said the Spirit departed from him. And then John 15 says, when the Comforter is come, which is the Holy Spirit, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And I, I wanted to put that verse in specifically because so many times there's a lot of wrong ideas about the Holy Spirit and what his work is. And you can go to John 16 and it lists that specifically. But notice in the last part of that verse in John 15, it says, He shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit, as he operated in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, his main focus was point people to the Savior, to point people to Jesus. Um, as one man told me when I was growing up, he said, if you see the Holy Spirit leading the band, there's something wrong. And what he was getting at is the focal point of all of our Bible is who? Jesus. Um, I remember Ernie Merritt's ordination, the pastor asked him, said, of 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who should we focus on? And Ernie thought for a minute, and he said, Jesus. And the answer is, Jesus is the focal point of how we worship God. It's, he tells us in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Here he says the Holy Spirit is going to testify of him. And so everything we do and everything we read, the goal should be that it points to Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit works differently right now. And then in Romans 8, chapter, uh, verse 9, it says the Spirit of God dwell in you. And if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And so in the New Testament, from the time of Pentecost, and I believe to the time of the rapture, the Holy Spirit, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, comes to indwell us and to guide us, to give us illumination of the Scripture. That is not how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, He would come upon a person for whatever season that God deemed appropriate to accomplish His will. The church has, in my opinion, a significant advantage over the Old Testament saints in that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. When the rapture occurs, things are going to revert back to what I believe the Holy Spirit's operation in the Old Testament was. He'll still be at work, but he won't be indwelling like we know it. Um, and the thing about it is, we just aren't used to anything but that. That's what we've all grown up with. We accepted Christ, and he indwelled us. Roxanne, go ahead. They'll be sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we're, we're sealed also. In Ephesians it says we're sealed unto the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. Um, but there's a difference between being indwelt and sealed. Sealed is like an envelope and put us in it. Indwelt is where the Holy Spirit is in us. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit which is mentioned in Corinthians. It's a great question though when you think about it because... In Revelation, it talks about 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They will be Jews. They will not be the church. They will be Jews, and they will be sealed. No one can harm them during that time because God will seal them. But I believe there is a difference between the two things. So, Any other questions on any of that or comments, Bob? Mm-hmm. For the purpose of knowing the height, breadth, length, and depth of Christ's love. Absolutely. And I was reading in Romans the other day and found in chapter 15, mentions the Holy Spirit four or five times in the scriptures. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, you know, so many times there's kind of two ditches we can fall into. One is where we over-focus on the Holy Spirit, and one is where we don't focus on the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, 
we need to kind of stay a little more balanced than that. The Holy Spirit works in our life, and we ought to be grateful for that. At the same time, our focus needs to be to point to Jesus, not be wrapped up in what the Holy Spirit is um, doing in our life so much. The Holy Spirit, if you want to know what he's doing in our life, just read John 16, and it tells you he convicts of sin, he basically promotes righteousness, he illumines us and guides us in truth. Uh, those are the things the Holy Spirit does. So anyway, I wanted to make sure we covered that. Um, I thought it was a good question. And when we go into um, a section, I want people to feel comfortable uh, us talking about those things and asking questions. And I don't have a problem if it's related to what we're studying and someone has a question that kind of takes us down a little rabbit trail, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it relates to what we're studying, yes. I don't think that you have to differentiate because if you really look at it, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're all one God. We just know them as three distinct personalities. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think you have to, to you know, kind of put your head in your hands and, oh, which one do I talk to? The reality is you talk to one, you're talking to all of them, you know, and so um, I don't make that distinction. Yeah, I think God doesn't either. Pardon me? I said I wanted to be sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and some of us just mix it all up. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah, I, I do the same thing you're talking about. Usually, you know, I'll start the prayer with Heavenly Father, and we'll end with, in Jesus' name, we ask, you know, amen. Um, I think the thing that we need to recognize is we're praying to one God, and we're allowed to address him as Father, which to me is, is really uh, a very special thing. Um, it's far more intimate than God or you know, any other way we could address him. It, it's, to me, one of the most intimate ways. And I think it's because of what Jesus did on the cross that we have that relationship and that privilege. So all of that being said, last week the thing we ended on was in verse 10 and 11. We highlighted the fact that God's glory is his character. And a lot of his actions are determined by his character and his glory. Notice it said in, in one part, for his name's sake, for the sake of his praise, for God's own sake. And so the last thing that we ended on was the fact that what God does, 
is not because we deserve it. It's not because anyone in the human race deserves it. It's because it displays his glory and it's for his name's sake. And in particular, if you think of Israel, they failed miserably, just like we the church today. Honestly, if we look at what the church is like, we're far too worldly. And God could say to us the same thing, you failed miserably. I gave you my indwelling spirit, which is a huge advantage, and yet you, like my chosen people Israel, want to chase after idols. And we do, and it's not good. And it hopefully bothers us when we realize it. And so that being said, everything that God was doing, and the big key thing was the fact he didn't cut them off, that second bullet up there. He didn't cut them off, and it wasn't because they deserved something better. They deserved to be cut off. And we could say the same thing about ourselves. But instead of cutting them off, he talked about the furnace of affliction. And the truth is, is that still hasn't accomplished its desired result in Israel. When Messiah came, Israel didn't trust God and they rejected Messiah. They've had years of affliction since Jesus' first coming. And they still, if you ask them a lot of things uh, about their beliefs in God today, they still will tell you that they struggle with that because how can a loving God allow all this bad stuff to happen? And the better question is, is how can a righteous God accept a people that are so unrighteous and not cut them off? And so all of that being said, it introduces us, and I know that was a long introduction today, to verses 12 through 22. Let's read those together. Isaiah 48 starting in verse 12, says, Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. Mine hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. All ye assemble yourselves, and hear, <clears throat> which among them hath declared these things. The Lord hath loved him. He will do his pleasure in Babylon, and his arms shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. I have called him. I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. Come near unto me. Hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. There am I. And now the Lord God and his spirit has sent me. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, thy Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commands. Then had thy peace been as a river and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and thine offspring, offspring as the bowels 
like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. Go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing declare ye, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth, and say, The Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob. And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He caused the water to flow out of the rock for them. He clave the rock also, and the waters gushed out. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Number of things are in here that I think are very interesting. First of all, Israel is being called to recognize her Messiah. And the first thing I want to point out there is in verse 12. Notice, they says, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Who is that that is talking? Jesus. Absolutely, Jesus. If you were to go to Revelation 22, and you don't need to, but I'll just read verses 12 and 13. Revelation 22 says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work, as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It's not a title that God the Father goes by. It's not a title that the Holy Spirit goes by. It's a title that has been given to Jesus. And so here in Isaiah, and obviously you and I could not convince a Jewish person because we'd have to go to the New Testament and they would say, well, I don't have anything to do with that. But we see Isaiah basically highlighting the fact that Jesus is identified as deity and the first and the last. And so, and by the way, uh, notice that Jacob and Israel again is mentioned. Isaiah does this multiple times where he mentions the name Jacob and Israel together. And so he mentions that. He then points to Jesus. He then points to creation. And I want to take you to Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17 because I believe in this verse he's identified in verse 12 that he's talking about Jesus the first and the last and then in verse 13 I believe if you consider the context Jesus is speaking and he's saying that he laid the foundation of the earth which is 100% correct. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Who is the image of the invisible God, talking of Jesus, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things. And by him all things consist. I believe many of the writers of our New Testament, when they read Isaiah, and when they considered the things that Jesus did when he came and died on the cross for our sins, they connected the dots for us. They basically said, yes, God the Father was part of creation, 
but so is God the Son. I believe God the Son is the spoken word that brought creation into existence. And I believe the Holy Spirit was a part of that also. But the one that Colossians is pointing to and that Isaiah is pointing to is Jesus. The fact that he is part of creation as far as being the creator. Now the interesting thing is how does creation respond to Jesus? Isaiah tells us how, how does creation respond? Praise. Should be praise, but isn't always. <laughs> okay, but Bobby's right. That should be the natural response to our Creator. You can peek. You can read in the verse what it says. It says, when I call unto them, what do they do? They stand up together. And so all creation obeys Jesus' command. And I don't know about you, but I think about when he and his disciples were in the Sea of Galilee and the tempest was there. They wake him up. And Jesus doesn't appear to even flinch from what the Bible tells us. He just gets up and he says, Peace be still. And all creation obeys his command. Right now... Much of creation is in rebellion to God and to Jesus. But the truth is, is one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And that passage in Philippians, I believe, is also pointing back to Isaiah who talks about bowing before the Lord. Yes, ma'am. Uh, verse 14. Yeah. Excuse me, 13. I was getting too excited and moving on. Verse 14 does what Isaiah has done in previous verses, and that is court resumes. And the first thing you see in verse 14 is says all ye. doesn't say who the all ye is, but I think it's the idols and all mankind. He's calling them back to court. Um, Isaiah has mentioned this multiple times. And then when he's doing that, he basically highlights the fact, who among them, among all the people, among all the idols, is able to tell what God's going to do in the future? The answer is none of them. And Isaiah keeps pointing this out. He says, which of you know what's going to happen in the future? Which of you could have predicted that I would use Cyrus? And so that's the idea is that he's communicating, he's summarizing here in these last few verses of chapter 48, verses 14 and 15. So all mankind and the idols are called together. They're challenged again, very briefly in just a little phrase, you know, to declare what God is revealing. And then, as he mentions it, he says, the Lord hath loved him. And it's like, where'd that come from? You know, and it took me a few readings, but he's going again back to Cyrus. And so each time he's dealing with the idols, he keeps coming back and he keeps saying to them, Cyrus is going to be my servant. So if he picked Cyrus already, he's given them a final warning. Oh yeah, absolutely. 
And so they're challenged to look at the future, but this one where, and, and the hard part here is, you know, it's like, who is him? Um, my wife's a grammar teacher, and she says, yeah, when there's no clear antecedent, meaning someone that's being talked about, when you get to a pronoun like this, the first question that comes up in your mind is, is who is him? Um, and I don't say that to use bad grammar. I use it to say the pronoun him we struggle with. Well, the reality is, is um, the commentaries are pretty much in agreement. It's not like they have a disagreement here. They all pretty much say this is the continuation of Isaiah highlighting the fact God's going to use Cyrus. And notice what it says about him. It says... God will accomplish his purpose on Babylon and the Chaldeans. But then he emphasizes the fact, I have brought him and he shall make his way prosperous. Again, that's emphasizing the fact that he called Cyrus. When Cyrus came to power, it wasn't like anyone else propelled him there. God was there from the beginning preparing the way for Cyrus. And he had a pretty easy time of it. It wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar who came in and had to fight battles. Cyrus came in and it just was all pretty much done for him because God was going to use him. And so that brings up the last point concerning this aspect of God using Cyrus and that is God will bring Cyrus into power and God will make him to prosper. Anytime I hear the word prosper, it causes me to, to think of a verse, the hardest verse I think I ever had to memorize, and that's Joshua 1.8. And Joshua 1.8, some of you I see nodding your head, you know, recognize some of the things in there. It says, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Thou, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Cyrus didn't know all that. But one of the things that you and I should know is that knowing God's word isn't enough. We need to know and obey his word. Observe to do according to all that is written therein. And then God promises prosperity and success in that particular case. Here, Cyrus didn't do a thing to deserve this. But God picked him. God chose him. And it was totally against what a Jewish person would think. The first thing the Jewish person would be thinking is, wait a minute, he's a Gentile. How can Jehovah, how can Yahweh use a Gentile? I mean, we're his chosen people. Sad thing is, is the church can have the same kind of attitude. Well, how can God use an unbeliever? Same way he can use us. Same way with Balaam, he used a donkey. I mean, you know, it's not that hard for God. And it brings up again and again Proverb 21, verse 1, where it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers he turneth it whither he chooses. And so 
we have here the fact God is going to use Cyrus. He's going to prosper him. And that brings us to verse 16, which again starts out with the idea of, Hear ye this, come ye near unto me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and his spirit has sent me. That was kind of interesting to bring up this verse, verse 16, and kind of highlight six rules of biblical interpretation. First rule says the rule of logic. If it makes plain sense then, and common sense, then seek no other sense. Okay? And when we reread 16, I want you to keep that in mind. And then the second rule, and I think I got these in the hermeneutics class that, that we had. Um, I didn't write down where I wrote them down. was rule of context, the grammatical context, the historical context, the literary context. The third one is rule of language. Be careful not to distort words or, or give undue meaning to them. The rule of comparison with scripture, other scripture, and looking for non-contradiction as well as the law of first mention. And then the rule of distinction, which is primarily between Israel and the church. We do not want to get those mixed up because then all sorts of things get confusing. And then the rule of perspective. Always take a God-centered perspective and you say, why did you bring those up? Well, let's reread 16. It says, come ye near unto me, hear ye this. The first question in my mind is, who is me? In that first phrase. Well, maybe, maybe not. Okay. Okay, and so Linda is looking at context, and I have no problem with that. Um, and I think I had very similar thoughts to you, okay? Um, and this may surprise you where it goes eventually. Um, and then it says, I have not spoken. So I and me, I start to relate together, okay? But again, there's no clear antecedent as to who me and who I is but it says I have not spoken in secret from the beginning and that then begs the question of okay which beginning okay are we talking creation beginning or are we talking the beginning of when Cyrus is being announced as being the one God's going to use to deliver and then it says from the time that it was there am I. And that, that adds then further um, questions. Okay, who is this I? Is this I the same as the previous I and the previous me? And from the time that it was, sounds like past tense, but Cyrus is 200 years in the future. And then he says, and now the Lord God and his spirit has sent me. And so again, who is the me? Who is the I? 
Roxanne. Okay, one of the one of the things that's proposed by the commentaries is that some of the me's and I's in here are Isaiah. Some of the commentaries say that it's Jesus. Um, some say that half of the verse is Isaiah and half of the verse is Jesus. Um, and so I still have the rules of interpretation on the screen. Does that help? No. And by the way, part of the reason I wanted to bring it up that way is when I see the commentaries having, not debates, but definitely not total alignment, it has me scratching my head. You know, what caused them not to have that? My personal understanding aligns with what Linda said, which is I look at the context before that, and God is the one doing the action of bringing Cyrus. And I look at the phrase afterward, and it's specifically talking about Jesus because it said in verse 17, Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, thy Holy One of Israel. And so when I look at it, I look at the I in verse 16 and the me in verse 16, and I see Jesus all over that. Now, I can also understand, in fact, one of the commentaries points out that there are evidently interpretation difficulties with saying it's Isaiah and there's interpretation difficulties with saying it's Jesus, but I'm not smart enough to know those difficulties. And so when I look at in the context, which is why I put the six rules of interpretation, I reach the same conclusion that Linda did. I think it, pardon me? Mm -hmm. Yep. But one could argue that Isaiah could claim that too. That the Lord God and his spirit hath sent me. And Isaiah could be the one doing that. But I don't see Isaiah personally doing that. Yep. Exactly. Which you're basically, you know, looking at the first rule of logic. And that is before as well as the context. You're looking and saying... It just makes sense that this is Jesus. And it does. Uh, and so I don't understand all the arguments that the, the scholars have. Pardon me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's good that you're doing that. And so what I want you to notice here is verse 16, the last part of it. The one thing, even if you just kind of brush aside all the controversy of who, who's being said on, on the different things, it says that God, the Lord God, Jehovah, and his spirit hath sent me. We see the Trinity there if you see the me as Jesus. We see God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son all in that verse. 
And I don't think it's by accident that God revealed that to Isaiah and had him share that. I think as there was more revelation given when Jesus came the first time and then the apostles came, all of that has us looking back at Old Testament scripture and we should see Jesus throughout Old Testament scripture and the Trinity. Some of those things to me just leap out now because the Jews wouldn't have seen it. They wouldn't have known that there was a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit except for verses like verse, verse 16. And so we see the Trinity. One other thing that I'm going to look, you know, go quickly through here because we're almost out of time is Messiah's role. He hasn't spoken in secret. I'm assuming all of the pronouns are talking about Jesus. The other thing is he was there when it took place. And you say, when it took place, what is it? Doesn't matter. He was there. He was there in the past. He's there here in the present. And he is in the future. God supersedes time. And so the, when it took place has relatively little importance when you consider God was there. And this was deity speaking when it says I was there, not Isaiah. Isaiah can't claim that. And so it would make the it more important if you understood as Isaiah. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes, definitely. In fact, my own personal belief, you're asking, she's asking about creation, where the scripture says, and God said, let us make man in our own image. I think part of how we're made in the image of God is I believe man is a trichotomy of body, soul, and spirit. Now, there are a lot of pastors, including ours and our previous one, that believe man's a dichotomy, just body and spirit. And that's fine. Um, I'm not convinced that that's a major doctrine to get all excited about, but my personal belief is that man is made in the image of God and that just as we have a triune God, we have three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Well, they are getting way too restless out there, so we are not going to be able to finish. Um, next week is a combined Sunday school. Um, I will leave you with this thought, though, on verse 17. Think about what Redeemer does, a Redeemer, and think about the implications of the Holy One of Israel. And are those two things aligned, or do they see things very differently? And that's where we'll pick up in a few weeks. Next week is Combined Sunday School, following week. If all goes well, I'll be in Advent Hospital for about eight days, hopefully less, but don't know. I'm not sure how things will react. Let's close with a word of prayer so everyone else can join us in the auditorium. Heavenly Father, we do again give thanks that you are in control of what's happening in this world. We thank you for the great gift that you've given of your son that allows us 
through faith to have salvation and forgiveness and peace with you. And so, Father, we, we come into this worship service and we pray you would direct our hearts and our minds and our thoughts to exalt our Savior highly and to speak highly of him and to reverence and also to obey him. And so, Father, as we come into this worship service, may we meet with you and go away different and better because of having spent time in your word and and getting to know our Savior better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.